ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Monday the 27th of November. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. Another group of Israeli hostages has been freed from Gaza. It's the third release under a fragile four-day truce between Israel and Hamas. They include a four-year-old girl who was orphaned when Hamas launched its terrorist attacks early last month. As the latest group of hostages emerged, the family of one of the children freed in an earlier exchange for Palestinian prisoners has spoken about the joy and pain of this difficult time. Correspondent Adam Harvey filed this report from Jerusalem. Three Thai workers and 14 Israelis have been brought out of Gaza. One of the Israelis is four-year-old Avigail Idan, a dual American citizen, now an orphan. Her parents were murdered on October 7 in front of Abigail and her nine-year-old brother, who was not taken hostage. Her release comes after nine-year-old Ohad Munda emerged from seven weeks of captivity into the glare of global attention. Uh, Ohad is a very smart and sensitive uh, kid. Uh, He doesn't really understand how famous he is and how everyone loves him in Israel and all over the world. His cousin, Merev Moore Raviv, says the family is easing him back with the help of his friends. Um, the hospital told him, the, him that he can um, pick uh, two, he can invite two friends. So he said, I can't pick only two. I have lots of friends. And I think there was like 10 of them. Or But the joy of his release, along with that of his mum and grandmother, is tempered by the trauma of what's happened to the rest of the family. Uh, so now uh, my uncle is still in captivity. My cousin was murdered and three came back. The families aren't allowed to speak about what happened inside Gaza, where more than 150 people remain prisoner. Under the hostage deal, 50 Israelis are to be freed in return for a ceasefire, the arrival of aid trucks into Gaza and the release of 150 Palestinians from Israeli prisons. The nightly release of prisoners has sparked celebrations in the West Bank, notable for the waving of Hamas's green flags in an area where the militant group once had few supporters. One of the first to be freed was 17-year-old Ahmed Newman Abu Naim. He spoke to the ABC at his home in the small West Bank village of Al Muraya. I was happy, I was very happy, but at the same time I didn't believe it until I left jail. Ahmed was imprisoned a year ago for throwing rocks and an incendiary device at soldiers. He was due to be released next month. His father, Newman Ahmed, is happy to have him out but upset that his early release is a product of the war in Gaza. He holds up his phone showing an image of a wounded Palestinian girl. This is in Gaza, this girl is injured, and my son was released because of that, because of this blood that has spilled. The ceasefire and prisoner exchanges are due to end on Tuesday. Negotiators are pushing for an extension of several days, but Israel's government and military commanders are adamant that the war will continue soon. This is Adam Harvey in Jerusalem for AM. Well, the United States is pushing for the extension of the temporary ceasefire to free more hostages from Gaza and allow further humanitarian aid into the region. President Joe Biden's welcomed the release of the American-Israeli child who's been held by Hamas and says the pause should be kept in place for as long as the hostages are being let out. North America correspondent Jade McMillan reports in a warning there are some distressing details in this story. 
Abigail Idan turned four while she was being held by Hamas. She's now back in Israel, but the US president says a long process of healing is only just beginning. You know, her mom was killed in front of her when her, when her kibbutz was uh, attacked by Hamas terrorists on October 7th. Abigail ran to her dad then, who then was gunned down, gunned down as well, while using his body to shield little Abigail. She then ran to a neighbor for help, where they were all taken hostage. The, that entire house of neighbors were taken hostage by Hamas and held for 50 days. What she endured is unthinkable. US officials believe another nine Americans are still being held in Gaza, with just one day left under the temporary ceasefire agreement. Joe Biden hopes the truce could be kept in place for longer. That's my goal. That's our goal, to keep this pause going beyond tomorrow so that we can continue to see more hostages come out and surge more humanitarian relief into, into those in, who in need in Gaza. We've seen this is the day-by-day -day approach, hour-by-hour process. Nothing is guaranteed and nothing is being taken for granted. But the proof that this is working and worth pursuing further is in every smile and every grateful tear we see on the faces of those families who are finally getting back together again. The proof is little Abigail. Israel has previously said the pause in fighting would be extended by one day for every 10 additional hostages set free once the four-day period was up. Qatar helped to broker the deal, and the country's Prime Minister, Sheikh Mohammed bin Abdul Rahman Al Thani, told CBS he's also in favour of an extension. We are hopeful. According to uh, uh, the agreement that uh, been agreed upon uh, in the last few days for this uh, four days uh, pause, uh, the agreement has a provision that uh, if Hamas are, will be able to prove, uh, to locate and secure some of the hostages that are within uh, the criteria of the first group, which is women and children, then it will be uh, extended, depends on, on the number that they will have. This is something we cannot confirm yet until we get uh, to the fourth day. The ceasefire has allowed aid agencies to scale up the amount of food, water, fuel and medicine being delivered into Gaza. But the executive director of the United Nations World Food Programme, Cindy McCain, says it's not enough and the region of more than two million people is on the brink of famine. With that comes disease and, and everything else that you can't imagine. Bottom line, we need more trucks in, we need more aid in, we need to be able to have more access to be able to distribute the aid. Uh, and, and, you know, hopefully maybe a longer time to do that, not just four days. A fragile peace with no guarantee it will continue to hold. This is Jade McMillan in Washington reporting for AM. Law enforcement agencies are getting a $255 million federal funding boost to help monitor people who've recently been released from immigration detention. Political reporter Noor Haydar is at Parliament House in Canberra. Noor, why has the government committed this additional funding? Well, this package comes in direct response to the High Court's ruling on immigration detention. $150 million will go towards Australian Border Force and the government says that that'll fund additional staff, investigations and surveillance work, while $88 million will be allocated to the Australian Federal Police to support regional response teams and personnel to investigate breaches of visa conditions. Since the High Court ruled that's, that it's unconstitutional to detain people in 
indefinitely. 141 non-citizens have been released from immigration detention. Some of them, not all, have serious prior convictions, including for murder and for sexual assault, and have previously failed visa character assessments. The government did move uh, earlier this month to pass emergency legislation uh, to apply stricter conditions, visa conditions on this cohort, which includes a requirement to abide by curfews and to wear ankle monitoring devices. And the government says that this package will ensure that law enforcement agencies have the resources they need to manage this group. And or the government's also moving to respond to another High Court ruling. Yes, Labor has been facing political pressure from the opposition on a number of fronts on matters related to immigration policy as we enter this uh, final or second last sitting week of Parliament for the year. Today, Labor will be introducing new laws to strip Australian citizenship from terrorism offenders. This is in response to an entirely separate High Court ruling on a matter involving convicted terrorist Abdul Nasser Benbrika, who had his citizenship cancelled in 2020 by then Minister Peter Dutton. Ben Breaker challenged the validity of coalition-era laws which gave the Home Affairs Minister the power to strip citizenship from convicted terrorism offenders and he won with the court finding that punishments for criminal offences should be imposed by the judiciary, not by the government. Labor says that the Morrison government had been warned that their laws uh, ran a high risk of being unconstitutional and yet still chose to proceed. The government will now be introducing legislation that takes into account the High Court's decision. Nor Haidar then. Australia is heading to a major United Nations climate change summit with new data showing the government's close to meeting one of its signature emissions targets. The information's in a summary of a report to be released later this week and it shows Australia's on track to cut greenhouse gas emissions by 42% by 2030, just shy of Labor's 43% target. While climate experts welcome it, they insist the government still needs to reduce fossil fuel emissions. Here's political reporter Evelyn Manfield. Just days after announcing a massive taxpayer-funded boost to the renewable energy industry, the Albanese government's revealed Australia is on track to meet its 2030 emissions reduction target. The analysis that greenhouse gas emissions will be reduced by 42% by the end of the decade comes from the Department of Climate Change and Energy. It seems a greater likelihood now that we'll hit that target by the end of the decade. Professor Jackie Peel is an expert in climate change law at the University of Melbourne. But it's important to appreciate that's just our target to 2030. There's also questions then about if we're going to be able to meet that target, what the next target will be uh, out to 2035. Director of the Climate Energy Institute at ANU, Professor Mark Howden, agrees there's still work to do. A lot of the emission reductions to date happened because of reductions in land clearing for other reasons largely. Uh, and that's a once-off. You can only do that reduction once. And, and that's been the major contributor to emission reductions so far. And so when we look at our core emissions, say from fossil fuels, um, they have gone down only fairly marginally. Uh, So what we need to do is is start to target those fossil fuel emissions and push them down very quickly. Professor Howden, who's co-authored major UN reports on climate change, says the government's expansion of a program to boost investment in the renewable energy sector should help to do that. 
we needed to beef up the adoption of renewables. That's uh, solar and wind and um, storage of different types. The boost to the renewables sector was seen as an acknowledgement that the target to have wind, solar and pumped hydro make up 82% of the energy mix by the end of the decade was in jeopardy. Now these emissions projections are something the federal government can share at the UN Climate Summit, known as COP28, which kicks off in Dubai later this this week. There are very big issues on the agenda at this COP, not least um, the finalisation of what's known as the global stock take, which is assessing countries' progress towards meeting their emissions reduction targets and whether they're going to be on track uh, to meet the temperature goals. Professor Jackie Peel says while last year's climate summit welcomed the Albanese government's climate ambitions, Australia might now face tougher scrutiny. In particular, because Australia is bidding to try and host one of these UN climate meetings itself, uh, COP31, which would be held in 2026. So if it's putting it forward itself as, as a climate leader, there will be interest to see how it's backing up its uh, grand words with action. Climate Change and Energy Minister Chris Bowen will attend the UN Climate Conference in Dubai. Evelyn Manfield reporting there. Authorities are rushing to contain the spread of a terrible pest, fire ants, which have been found in New South Wales for the first time. There have been infestations in Queensland for more than two decades, but the discovery of nests in Mwilumba, 13 kilometres south of the border, is a blow to long-term efforts to eradicate them. Elizabeth Cramsey reports. 18 months after Mwilumba was devastated by floods, local businesses have a different crisis to deal with fire ants. All businesses uh, and residents within a five kilometre radius of that site are now not able to transport any kind of landscaping supplies or earth kind of materials. So mulch, soil, pot plants, manure, hay, any of those products can't be transported out of that zone. Chris Cherry is the Tweedshire Mayor. Three colonies have been identified across nine nests at a new industrial development in South Mwilumba. Fire ants inflict a painful sting on humans and animals, damage crops and bring businesses to a standstill. We've got a lot of agricultural businesses here and it has the potential to affect them in the way they operate their businesses. And obviously they will be able to continue operating, but right now they've been put under a New South Wales Department of Primary Industries order that says they have to stop and may not trade outside that five kilometre zone until the DPI has given them a Graham Dudgeon is the head of operations for the National Fire Ant Eradication Program. So we dig them up to have a look and see what the colony's like, try to get an understanding about how old it might be, whether any of the ants have flown, and then we'll obviously kill those ants and then we'll survey out from there. So we survey initially out 500 metres and we're in the middle of doing that now. We also treat with a bait to kill any nests that may not be visible. To try to figure out how the pests arrived, investigators will interview people who delivered materials to the site. We'll ask them what might have been brought onto the site. We'll then try to identify where they may have come from and then we'll look to see if there are fire ants at the point of origin or even whether it might have been 
taken to that point from somewhere else. The Shadow Minister for Agriculture, David Littleproud, believes the Queensland government bears some responsibility. It was close to eradication in southeast Queensland some years ago. And unfortunately, the Queensland government, despite the generosity of the Australian taxpayer, both at a federal and state level, not just from Queensland, but from all the states, they saw the urgency of this, have, have charged Queensland with the responsibility of trying to eradicate. And unfortunately, the Queensland government has dropped the ball on this and New South Wales will, will foot the bill. However, the Federal Agriculture Minister, Murray Watt, has defended Queensland's efforts. Oh, of course, we would have preferred to have seen this pest eradicated entirely, but nowhere else in the world has been able to do that. And in fact, the Queensland government has managed to contain the spread of fire ants much better than what we've seen in other parts of the world. Mwoolumba residents are being urged to check their backyards for the pests and to report any nests. Elizabeth Cramsey reporting there. Australia is to be proud of our record in cutting the road toll with compulsory seatbelts, random breath testing and safer vehicle design all helping. But the road toll is now rising in many states. So what's making our roads more dangerous and what can be done about it? Nick Grimm takes a look. When it comes to deaths on the nation's roads, the numbers tell the story. Michael Bradley is the Managing Director of the Australian Automobile Association. Yeah, Australia's road toll numbers are terrible at the moment. We've got a road toll that's increasing at around 7% per annum. We've got a South Australian road toll that's up 47% this year. New South Wales isn't much better. We've got pedestrian deaths up around 10% per year. And we've got cycling deaths up at 30% per year. So these numbers tell us that Australia's current approach to road trauma management is not working. It's absolutely going in the wrong direction. We're supposed to be trying to cut these rates by 2030 and instead they're going up. So we have a lot of work to do. Dr Ingrid Johnston is the Chief Executive of the Australasian College of Road Safety. Campaigners like her believe there are several factors that could be making the roads more dangerous, including the size of the vehicles we drive. Absolutely. There has been a significant increase and uptake of particularly really large SUVs and and utes and some of the kind of American-style really big pickup trucks, as they're called. If one of those bigger vehicles hits a pedestrian, they're much, much more devastating consequences than if a sedan does. It's also possible that efforts to design safer roads could be encouraging riskier driver behaviour. So whether it's the drivers, their vehicles or the roads, no one knows for certain what's causing the national road toll to climb because a lot of information isn't made public. Let's go back to Michael Bradley from the Australian Automobile Association. We can't tell you what's driving this. The data we need to understand it is collected, but it's not shared. We need to get serious about a data-driven response to an issue that's going to hospitalise 100 Australians today. Well, why isn't that information readily available? Well, that's a really good question that you should put to respective state and federal governments because this information is capable of saving lives. When we ask voters why they think this is not in the public domain, They're a very cynical bunch and they think that road funding is something that's used to save marginal seats rather than save lives. In a statement, the Federal Minister responsible for road safety, Assistant Infrastructure and Transport Minister Senator Carol Brown, says the Albanese government is working with the state, territory and local governments to collect and share data as part of the National Road Safety Action Plan. Nick Grimm reporting. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. 
Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. During a rally this month, the former US leader, Donald Trump, used rhetoric reminiscent of the Nazis, calling his domestic opponents and critics vermin. Today, a historian of American political language, Dr. Jennifer Machia, on how Trump uses language to whip up support. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.